Good morning. Please join me in reading from the book of John, chapter 15, verses 9 through 17. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Among all the the categories of people uh, with whom we interact as human beings, and from the number of different folks in this room, there's a whole lot of people that in a given week, I think all of us collectively interact with. There are two kinds that, that don't often overlap. So think about this with me. Okay, there are people we love and there are people we obey. All right, follow me for a second, okay? Who are some of the people you love? People for whom you have, have, a, have a deep or abiding affection, or maybe you're thinking, at least I ought to, but I don't, whatever. People that you, that you love, okay? Maybe your spouse or your friends or your siblings or your boyfriend or girlfriend or your, your children or grandchildren. Who comes to mind when you think about people that you obey, or at least are supposed to obey? Relationships where you have to submit uh, to somebody else's authority. Teachers, referees, your boss at work, maybe the police, or how about those TSA agents at the airport? No, you can't bring that on the plane. <laughs> I promise it's not a spear, it's a hiking pole. <laughs> we, we don't usually think about obeying people in that first category. You know what I mean? And, and we don't, we love them. And we don't usually feel a lot of love for people in the second category. We obey them. Most of the time. We, we tend to enjoy loving people, right? It's a feeling that, that arises spontaneously within us. We, we often tolerate or even disdain obeying people. It, it's kind of suspect at best because it requires submission to somebody else's authority. And I think given the choice, most of us, I would guess, would much rather spend a day 
with somebody that we love, right, than a day with someone that we have to obey. And that, that contrast, friends, if you're tracking with the contrast, okay, that, that wall of separation that we build between love and obedience, but between relationships of affection and relationships of authority, that contrast, that wall, those separate categories, that gets us in a ton of trouble when it comes to our relationship with God. A ton of trouble. And the reason is that God deserves and requires both of those things. Think about it. In the passage Suzanne just read, there are two words that show up over and over and over again, okay? Love and command or commandment. Affection and and authority. And the world says what? That those things don't go together, (laughs) right? They don't go together. Authority is not loving. Well, Jesus says when it comes to our relationship with God, that they're actually inseparable. You can't split them apart. Love, why not? Because love is expressed through obedience. And obedience consists of love. But we will never, hear this, we'll never be able to understand what love is or what obedience is by starting with what we think they are. That won't work. Why not? Because love and obedience both those things, they don't find their origin in us. They find their origin in God. In the same way, for all you fishermen types out there, okay? Love fly fishing. In the same way that the Jackson and the cow pasture rivers in Highland County give rise to the James that then flows through the rest of the state, it is God's love and God's obedience that give rise to our own. Look at verse nine, chapter 15. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so have I loved you. Think about that. From eternity past, before time existed or ever the world was created, God the Father has delighted in the person of God the Son as the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature. No one in the universe, friend, is lovelier than God. And because God is righteously and supremely devoted to his own glory, listen, no love is stronger, fiercer, more perfect or unreserved than God's love for himself. If God delighted in anyone more than he delights in himself, he would be guilty of idolatry. But he doesn't do that. The father and his love is is centered on the son, on Jesus, the the one in whom his, his own loveliness is most fully revealed. God the Father could not love the Son more and he will never love the Son less. 
And now here's the scandalous thing about all that. Because we're flying at this point. (laughs) The character and nature and fullness of the father's love for the son is the character and nature and fullness of the son's love for his chosen bride, the people of God. To which thoughtful people ought to say, how is, amen, and how is that possible? Right? I mean, are you kidding me? That the same love with which God the Father delights in God the Son is the same love that God the Son delights in us as his people? Is that in the Bible? (laughs) Yeah. How's it possible? We're we're, we're not, let's be honest, right? We're not lovely the way God the Son is lovely. I'm not. You're not. Sorry. We we bear his image, yes. Created in his image, yes. But, But that does not mean we deserve his love. What are we? We're sinners who need a savior. So, so why, back to our question, why are we included within the circle of God's Trinitarian love? Riddle me that. Exodus 34, verse 6. There is only one explanation. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. That's the answer. He he loves us because he is merciful. And delights to withhold the death that we deserve. And he loves us because he is gracious. What's grace? He he delights to lavish on us the favor we do not deserve. God's love for us, in other words, is not rooted in who we are or who you are. It's rooted in who he is. In the merciful and gracious character of, of his, his nature, his love for us, in other words, please hear this, is not a sign of our loveliness, but rather the overflow of his own to the praise of his glorious grace. And how exactly has Jesus loved us? Well, in the same way that the father loved him. That's what he says in verse 9. John 5, verse 20, for the father loves the son. How's the father love the son? And shows him all that he himself is doing. During his his earthly ministry, what did Jesus do for, for the greater part of three years? What did he do? He revealed to his disciples the character and ways of God through his words, through his deeds. And and that revelation, that display of the, the satisfying splendor of God's glory culminated climaxed in his death on the cross where where God exalted the justice of his character and the mercy of his ways. Those two things met at the cross for all the world to see. And that reminds us, friends, that, that it's the cross that's soon to come in view here in John. It's the cross that stands for all time as the ultimate expression and demonstration of God's love for you, Christian. 
That's the standard. Verse 13, look there. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. No, no force is stronger. No power is greater. No affection is more influential or decisive in your life than the everlasting cruciform love of God for you in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when you're tempted, like I'm tempted, to doubt Jesus' love, remember this, friend. If you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, Jesus' love for you can no more falter than the Father's love for Jesus. You you realize, quick aside, when we indulge in doubt or unbelief in Jesus' love for us, that we're not just doing that. We're also doing something else. We are calling into question the faithfulness of the Father's love for the Son. Because God says those two things are the same. As the Father has loved me, verse 9, so have I loved you. We, we, we must not move on from Jesus' love for us, friends. We don't move on from that. It's not a, a box we check or a, or a spiritual perk we obtain or, or a gift we get and then sort of stuff in our spiritual supply wagon in case we need it later. We, we, no, we don't move on from Jesus' love. Look back at verse nine. So important. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Okay, great, moving on. No, abide in my love. <laughs> abide in my love. What's that mean? To abide in Jesus' love is to trust, depend, persevere in leaning the entire weight of your life on his affection and care for you. That's what that means. So I ask, how do we do that? How do we, how do we abide in your love, Lord? That can sound so spiritual and Christianese and three cheers for abiding in his love. Great. I have no clue what that means. What, how do we do that? Well, I think the Lord himself gives us several answers in the next eight verses. So I'm going to give you three of them. Okay. Here's the first point one. How do we abide in Jesus' love? First, we obey his commands for the sake of our joy. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. It's like, oh, Lord, thanks. <laughs> you read my mind. How, how do I do this? Well, he tells us, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. You, you realize Jesus didn't obey God the father because something outside of himself forced him to. That's important. He always did the things that are pleasing to the father, John eight twenty nine, because he wanted to. He wanted to. Why? Why? Because he trusted the Father's love for him. That's why. He believed the Father's priorities and purposes for his life were good. That they weren't just random commands or random will of God. No. No, they were fueled by holy love. Even when they led God the Son, through the valley of the shadow of death. 
He trusted the Father and obeyed his commands accordingly. And and the same principle holds true for us, friends. This isn't complicated. Abiding in Jesus' love means obeying his commands because obedience is how we express genuine faith in the Lord's love for us. If, If Jesus, think about this, tells me to do something or not do something, and I say, Mm-mm. No, not doing it. I, I'm not just failing to obey him. What else am I doing? What, what else am I doing? I'm denying that he loves me. How, do, how am I doing that? I didn't say that. Because I'm refusing to believe that God has my best interest at heart. I'm I'm saying that when when push comes to shove, I am not at all confident that everything he says to me or tells me to do or not do is in fact fueled by holy love. I'm thinking it might be fueled by something else that, that has nothing to do with love for me. Obedience to God's word and all he commands us to do and not do is the most important expression and ultimately the test of genuine faith in God's love for us. Because to say, I won't obey you, is to functionally say, you don't love me. And and when we're denying God's love for us by refusing to obey his commands, is it any wonder, friends, should we be surprised that we struggle to enjoy God's love or experience God's love? Listen to D.A. Carson. He's right. However much God's love for us is gracious and undeserved, continued enjoyment of that love turns, at least in part, on our response to it. Those who experience the greatest assurance of God's love, in other words, in your heart, in your soul, who, who are those people? Who experiences the greatest assurance of God's love? It's those who are most faithful to obey his commands. Not because our obedience earns God's love, but because faith-filled obedience is how we abide in God's love. That's what Jesus is saying. To which it's easy to say, okay, fine. I know you love me, Jesus. I guess the least I can do in response to all you've done for me is toe the line by doing the whole obedience thing. I don't want to. I don't actually think it's going to make me feel any better. In fact, I think I would feel a whole lot better if I got to do what I want to do instead of always having to do what you want me to do. But, but you did die for me. Thanks. So fine, I'll, I'll obey you. Just remember to thank me later, okay? Because you owe me one. I can't believe I got to put up with all these dumb rules. Oh, many of you are too smart to say that out loud. But isn't it, don't don't we go there in our hearts and minds sometimes? 
If, if you're tempted to go there, look at verse 11. It's a whole sermon in its own right. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What, what is the, here's the big question, the these things at the beginning of verse 11. Well, it's the commandments Jesus just referred to in verse 10. He, he wants us, in other words, to be, to be crystal clear on something. Crystal clear on what is motivating him. What, what is compelling him, what is prompting and causing him to give us commands in the first place. What, what's he after? What, what's he seeking? He's marking out the path of life for you, friend. So that through your obedience, you can experience fullness of joy. God's commands are not an obstacle to your happiness. They are the lights along the runway that show you how to run in the path of life. That's what Jesus is after. He's not power tripping. He's seeking your joy. To to which, you know, we can say, wait a second, pastor. I I get that obedience toward Jesus is is the right thing to do. but, But how is it, How does it produce joy? If I'm being honest, a lot of times doing things God's way just feel like death. (laughs) Like I go God's way and at least I try to and and I just feel like something's dying on the inside. Well, it works like this, friend. I'll say it again. No one in the universe is more beautiful or glorious than God. Therefore, the greatest possible satisfaction, the deepest joy in the universe is the joy of knowing God and experiencing God for who he really is. No other creature on planet earth has the capacity to do that. You realize that. But you do. Why? Because God made you in his image. He he made you to know him. He made you to experience him. He made you for the joy of an intimate relationship with him where we depend on God, where we trust in God by obeying his word, biding in his love. But our sinful nature gets in the way of that. Big time. There's the corruption deep within my soul that wants nothing to do with God or his glory or whatever paltry joy he thinks I'm supposed to be happy with. I would rather depend and trust and glorify myself than abide in him. And if I can be so bold, so would you. And that is why Jesus came to earth in the first place, right? To to deliver us from our sinful desire to be God so that we could experience the joy of trusting and loving and obeying the one true God. 
That's why Jesus came. If you're willing to cry out to him for salvation from your sin, from the death you deserve as a result, he will freely forgive you and, check this out, he'll give you a new heart (laughs) and a new spirit that's eager and able to trust and obey God. You'll, You'll begin to experience the joy of abiding in Jesus by walking in the path of his commands through the power of the spirit. And the, and the moment that begins, the moment you become a Christian, something else begins that wasn't happening before. You know what that is? A war. Yep. Spirit fills your heart. He just started a war. A big war, in fact, between the spirit and the flesh. And that is why the path of obedience to Jesus' commands, even as Christians, is often painful, friends. Because it's a joy that requires a death. Death to what? Death to our pride. Death to our lust. Death to our selfishness and self-centeredness that would rather abide in our own desires and our own glory and our own resources instead of abiding in God's love by obeying his commands. That has to die. And if it doesn't die, you will never know the joy of abiding in God's love. And yet even in that struggle, spirit in the flesh, if you're in Christ, joy joy abounds. Even in the battle, why? 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 It's not the joy of an easy life, right? It's not the joy of a a suffering-free existence. It's the joy of what? Day by day, year by year, learning to abide in God's love by obeying his commands through the power of the Spirit. That's the joy. It's, It's the joy Jesus himself experienced by obeying his Father. Listen to his story in Psalm 16, verse 8. This is Jesus' story. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What what God the Son is offering you, friend, if you're willing to abide in his love by obeying his commands, is nothing less than his own joy. And there is no one in the universe more joyful than God. So he is not selling you short. He's not baiting and switching you. He's not saying, well, it's really a power trip, but I'm going to market it as joy. No. He loves you, friend. The way he's been loved by his father. And he longs to give you his joy. When you read a command in God's word, Don't think, oh, there he goes again. (laughs) Telling me what to do. Joy goes this way, God goes that way. No. Every one of those commands is God the Father, Son, and Spirit marking out for you the path that leads to your joy. 
You think of obedience that way? What am I doing today? I'm going to try to walk the path to joy. That's what it is. It's what it is. We abide in Jesus' love by obeying his commands for the sake of our joy. Second, point number two, by loving one another as he has loved us. Verses 12 and 13. How do we abide in his love? How's that become practical? By loving one another as he loved us. That the commandment, look back at verse 10, commandments that Jesus refers to there in a, in a significant way refer to everything that he's ever told us. It's not just limited to the immediate context, but, but there is one command in context here that functions as a headwaters for the rest. Look at verse 12. What's he say next? This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Can I just say what perhaps many of us are thinking? That the world, church included, is filled with people that are not easy to love. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you agree with that. Some of you are being very honest right now. Thank you, Richie. Yeah, it's, it's filled with people that aren't easy to love. But here's what begins to happen when we start learning day by day to abide in Jesus' love for us. You know what begins to happen? We discover a, a wellspring, a source of love that has nothing to do with them and everything to do with him. We, we love and begin to love others because he first loved us. We're, we're, ta- we're not reaching within ourselves and trying to find something loving to give. We're receiving love from God and passing that on. And how has Jesus loved us? Look at verse 13. He laid down his life for us, right? His love is unmerited and lavish, faithful, sacrificial, persistent, unselfish. I love it that covers over sin and gives us the exact opposite of what we deserve. Is that what your love for other people is like? Be honest. <laughs> do you love everyone around you like that? Or, or do you decide to only be as nice to them as, as they are to you? Or, or to love them to the degree you think they deserve it? You know, it sort of becomes a, a game, right? Like, I'll love them that far, and then if I get a little love back, then I'll give a little more. That is not biblical. And frankly, that won't work. The call, the privilege, the provision of God is that we are enabled to love others because he has first loved us. That's the wellspring. That's the source. It's not within you or within them. It's within him. Praise God. Praise God, friends. 
his love for us, the, the, the bidding doesn't start with what you deserve. Praise God for that. We, we'd be in a heap of trouble if it did. So, so let, me, let me flag two expressions of Jesus' love for us that I think are, are especially important for us as a, as a church, okay? First, it's a love that takes relational initiative. Relational initiative. In other words, Jesus didn't wait for us to seek him out. Or he didn't wait for us to become a little easier to love before he moved toward us. Praise be to God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were lost in darkness, Jesus came after us. He sought us out. So, so whether it's with acquaintances in your neighborhood or coworkers at the office or, or people at church on Sunday whose, whose names and stories you don't know, don't wait for them to come to you, friend. Love the way you've been loved. Take initiative to build relationships, to seek people out, to, to introduce yourself, to ask good questions, to, to offer to pray for people, to, to guard time and money, to open up your home, and practice hospitality. It's a love that takes relational initiative. Second, Jesus' love, love he's called us to, is a love that's sacrificial. It doesn't just take initiative, but, it, but it's sacrificial. What do we mean by this? I want to be very careful here, but I fear that much of what passes in our culture today in the name of self-care is really self-ishness in disguise. That a lot of what passes in our culture, self-care, is really selfishness in disguise. Is it wrong to take a night off from engaging with other people after a long day at the office? Not necessarily. Okay, I'll just, I'll spare you the anxiety. <laughs> what am I supposed to say? <laughs> Not necessarily. Is, is it wrong to spend a weekend at home and not come to church after you've been riding an emotional roller coaster? Not necessarily. But remember this, now that I have your attention. (laughs) Biblical love is sacrificial. Not sometimes, or periodically, or when we have abundant resources to sacrifice. So it's really not a sacrifice. (laughs) No, it's, it's always sacrificial. It was not easy for our Lord to lay down his life for us. He did it for the joy set before him, right? But it cost Jesus dearly. So listen, if you only relate or engage with other people in times and in ways that feel easy or convenient for you, friend, you are not abiding in Jesus' love. 
because you are not loving the way Jesus does. Your love isn't sacrificial. It's self-centered. In God's kingdom, we find life by doing what? Laying down our life. We, we find life by doing what? Spending and being spent for the sake of the souls around us. So take care that your approach to relationships, please hear this, friend. If, if we can get this, this will head off a thousand ills. Take care that your approach to relationships, your MO, your guiding light, doesn't become avoiding saying or doing anything that feels hard. Does that make sense? We, we can make our guiding principle in relationships. Here's how I roll when it comes to relationships. I ruthlessly avoid doing or saying anything that remotely feels hard, inconvenient, difficult, or sacrificial. Because, you know, self-care matters. Oh, that's deadly, friends. That's deadly. Ask the Lord to give you opportunities. Because this is the path of our joy, right? Opportunities to consider the interests of others more important than your own. Even when it costs you dearly. Why? Because it's right. Be happy in that. No, no. Because you're in the end, if you love like that, you're not sacrificing your joy. You're maximizing your joy. That's the whole point. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He calls you to do likewise. By the power of the Spirit, follow his example. Because the single best indicator of whether we're actually abiding against God's love, not just through our singing on Sunday, but for real, is whether we love one another the way he's loved us. And, and let me just say, now that I've challenged this from the word, Kingsway, on the whole, you excel in this area. You really do. It's... It's one of the reasons it's a joy to be your pastor. Because you excel in this. So hear that exhortation this way. See to it that we do so more and more and more. Okay? See to it that we do that more and more and more. We obey his commands for the sake of our joy. We love others as he's loved us. Here's the final way we abide in his love. We pray with confidence as his chosen friend. One of these just gets more amazing. Verses 14 and 17. We pray with confidence as his chosen friends. Jesus makes a stunning statement in verse 14. After urging us to abide in his love by obeying his command to love one another. What does he say? You are my friends if you do what I command you. Do you know in the Old Testament which is kind of the first half of the Bible, if you're not familiar with that division, before Jesus showed up. In the Old Testament, there were only two people that were called friends of God. Some of you woke up like, I love Bible trivia. <laughs> two people, in fact, yes. Abraham and Moses. And for Jesus to bestow the same honor on all of his obedient followers would have floored his disciples. Just floored them. 
It's an example of the greater blessings that are, that are available to us under the new covenant. The new way of relating with God made possible through Jesus' life and death. Look at verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Now, don't hear what he's not saying. There's, there's a critical sense in which if you're a Christian, you are a slave of Christ. The apostle Paul himself identifies himself as a slave of Christ over and over and over again. We're slaves of Christ. We're not our own. He bought us for himself at the cost of his blood. But we're not slaves in the sense of being relegated to the status of get your job done, expendables, (laughs) whose only duty is to get the job done. Just do it. Don't ask questions. No, we've received the incredible honor of being welcomed and loved as friends of God. Friends of God. Jesus' friends. Quick application. It's not wrong to want friendship with other people. That's a pretty deep human desire, right? To be included among their friends. But that desire can destroy your soul in a swamp of man-pleasing. When your desire for human friendship and your pursuit of human friendship fails to go down outside of the gratitude and amazement and confidence that you have the friendship of God. The only way we will ever safely pursue friendship with others, side note, and not demand from them what they can never ultimately give to us, is if we are secure and abiding in our friendship with God. Remember that. That doesn't mean Jesus is our spiritual buddy. He's not a peer. There's nothing. We we, we can hear. Facebook hasn't helped with this. Friendship can just sound so casual and flippant. Friend. I think not. Unfriend. No. No, he's not our buddy or our pal. Do not print a t-shirt that says Jesus is my homeboy. He's your king. And you get to be his friend. Which means he loves to spend time with you, Christian. He he enjoys being with you and, and sharing his heart with you. How do we know that? Verse 15, for all that I have heard from the Father, I've made known to you. What's what's he made known to us? Jesus tells us who God is, that he's the righteous judge who will by no means clear the guilty and he's a faithful savior who lavishes mercy on those who fear him. And Jesus tells us what God is doing. He's building his church through the power of the gospel, bringing lost men and women under his redemptive rule. The, The gospel, remember, it's the summit, the climax of all the father's work, of the fullest revelation of his character. Who God is and what he's doing isn't a mystery, in other words, because Jesus has made it known. And as the son of God, no one is more qualified to do that. 
Jesus isn't giving us, he's not a religious figure doling out hot takes on the divine. He's the eternal son of God who gives to us what he has first heard from the father. His word's worthy of your trust, friend. It's God's revelation of himself. And if you believe that and are trusting and obeying Jesus accordingly, remember this. The privilege of being God's friend is not something you selected or merited for yourself in the greatness of your wisdom. It is a gift from God. It is not your own doing. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Check it out. I'm a friend of God. (laughs) No. No. You were an enemy first. When's the last time you thought about one of your human enemies? Said to yourself, I'm going to love that person so that one day they're my friend. Oh, that's too much, Matthew. I'd rather put up relational boundaries to care for myself, you know, and that's a little unpleasant. It's what the Lord did for you. If you're a Christian, the ultimate explanation for your friendship with God doesn't lie in something you did. It has everything to do with the heart-transforming, life-altering grace of God. And notice, look back at verse 16, notice that God's sovereign power in your life is not limited to initially bringing you to faith in Christ, but to enabling and empowering and ensuring that you go from that point forward and bear much fruit, Christian. Think about that. You know, we can talk about, well, I know the only reason I chose God is because he chose me. Great. Okay, now, one, two, three, live for Jesus. (laughs) Yes, live for Jesus. But remember, It's the same sovereign decree and power and authority that brought you to faith in Christ and will now sustain you and enable you and guarantee, Christian, even when you feel so weak, that you will bear fruit. What a gift that is. God's sovereignty doesn't stop at the doorway of our initial coming to Christ. It endures and enables us to bear fruit. What a, what a comfort that is. Whether, it, whether you're fighting for godliness yourself or discipling other people, trying to help them pursue the same. That, that phrase, look back at verse 16. And I chose you and appointed you that you should go. There's a strong missional emphasis in that. We're not just talking about personal fruitfulness. We're, we're talking about the work God does through us as a church in the lives of other people. His his sovereignty, in other words, guarantees that fruitfulness, upholds that fruitfulness. So when when spiritual fruit in your life is slow in coming, Christian, don't lose heart. That's the point. A sovereign God is in control and he's going to finish the good work he began. Let's add to that. When spiritual fruit in somebody else's life that you love, maybe they're sitting in this room or sleeping next to you at home and it's slow in coming in, in their life, don't freak out. Don't lose heart. A sovereign God is in control and he's going to finish the good work he began. And if you're tempted to just say, I quit, 
I quit the whole fight for godliness. I'm, I'm just done trying to live for Jesus. I know I ought to, I know I should, but I just can't do it anymore. I tried it, pastor, sorry. Well, friend, please remember the means that our sovereign God has ordained to bring his fruit-bearing work to completion in your life. Look back at verse 16. I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. There's a pattern here. (laughs) Quickly, John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. John 15, 7. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 15, 16, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Oh, I thought that was an isolated promise that we need to explain away by talking about praying in accordance with the will of God. <laughs> no, that's, that's not an isolated promise. That's a, that's a pattern, friend. That, that's a spiritual foundation, an abiding principle. The way we bear fruit in the Christian life, Hear this, that the way we, the way we escape that cycle of, of fitful starts and stops is to bring every need, every request to the Lord in prayer with confidence and persistence, both for fruitfulness in our life and fruitfulness in the life of everybody around us. That's how we bear fruit. So if there's an area of your life where you need to grow in godliness, what should you do? If there's an area of your friend's life or your Spouse's life where they need to grow in godliness, what should you do? You should pray. You should ask and seek and knock and, and keep on. Why? Because your heavenly father is sovereign and you are his son's intimate friend. And so when we call on the name of the Lord, that's what prayer is. We're, we're doing the most important thing we ever do. We're doing what Jesus created and redeemed us to do. We're abiding in his love by praying, depending on him expressing our trust in him, looking to him as the the giver of every good gift, which is why things like gathering for prayer before the service on Sunday morning or gathering next Sunday at 6.30 to pray in particular for opportunities and challenges of singles and married couples in our church are are not optional activities for those who feel so inclined. (laughs) Or if it's convenient, or if it works, or if it fits in my plans. Prayer is the way we bear fruit in the kingdom of God. It's it's not the icing on the cake. It's the beginning and the middle and the end. That doesn't render us passive. Rather, it is the work we do. Lord, help us with that. If you want to abide in Jesus' love, do not chase spiritual highs by trying to find the latest Christian song or book or conference, or podcast that will make you feel emotionally closer to God. Don't do that. What you need to do is far more ordinary and far more supernatural. We obey Jesus' commands for the sake of our joy. We we love one another as he's loved us. And we pray with confidence as his chosen friends. That's how we abide in Jesus' love, friends. 
That's how it, ha- that's how it goes down. The, the, the idea, the idea that, that you can either be a, a morose, legalistic Christian who's into obeying God or a joyful, grace-loving Christian who's into loving God is a false choice on so many levels. Because here's what God longs for you to experience. Listen, the life-giving joy of loving God by running in the path of obedience to his commands, starting with the command to love others the way he's loved you. That's how we abide in Jesus' love. In the world, love and obedience are opposites. In the kingdom of God, they can't be separated. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so grateful for your love. We have sung about that this morning. We're going to sing about it shortly. And I especially pray right now, Lord, that you would help us to abide in your love for us. Not just to acknowledge it or to check box it or to believe it in some, yeah, I know that's true kind of way, but, but to rather, Lord, to lean the weight of our life on your love for us. Father, would you help us to see how the path of your commands really does mark out the path of joy. And I pray that you would, in particular, Lord, for those of us who have a a friend or a family member, maybe even a spouse, that's just really hard to love, that you would, King Jesus, amaze and overwhelm and fill our hearts with the glory of your love for us so that we might have an everlasting, enduring, never failing wellspring from which to give love even to our enemies. Help us with that, we pray in your name. Amen.